My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there, welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. Today's guest has lots to share about how to connect with and influence frontline workers. He's also passionate about decluttering safety procedures and the importance of capturing stories to better understand risk. He's serious about fun, as demonstrated in what he does in his spare time, which I will get into in the interview because it has a surprising amount in common with safety training. So stay tuned for that. Stephen Harvey is an operations-focused health and safety professional who takes a pragmatic approach to risk. He has extensive experience embedding contemporary safety practices and driving organizational safety culture through the capture of work insights and supplementary learning processes, closing the gap between work as imagined and work as done. Stephen has been in the OHS profession for 15 years and is currently a senior health and safety partner with Origin Energy. His work was featured in the 2017 documentary, Doing Safety Differently. Stephen strongly values a collaborative approach to enhance both the employee experience and operational objectives, and he believes in having some fun along the way. Stephen joins us from Brisbane. Welcome. Thanks, Mary. What a fabulous introduction. I'm really excited about this. I I actually sound interesting. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure our listeners will agree by the end that that you, in fact, are. So uh, let's start with influencing frontline workers. So why is that an important skill for a safety professional? Uh, Mary, as far as I'm concerned, it really is such an important skill. And it's one of these things we've really got to harness and get better at. We have the power on that to sort of capture those sort of stories from the front line so that we can sort of influence change, right? So we are the conduit between the guys on the front and the people in the office. That's what I call myself, you know, they'd be that conduit. So it's really important to to be in there doing the work, understanding their pain points, understanding where the risks are, and then being able to share those stories back and to be able to build that trust. It's such an important thing too, right? So we want to, for me, what, one of the things that I do is I get right in to the front line. I'll have lunch with the guys. I won't even talk about safety when I meet these people. I'll talk about their families. I'll talk about what interests them. I'll talk about sports activities and just really get in there and build those relationships. And then in time, that's when you start to uncover some of the work as imagined that we spoke about in the introduction. Because uh, in some mm. of these larger organizations you have, like they call it the blue line, black line. I'm pretty sure you've heard some of your You've heard of that term before. I've heard some of the guests talking about it. So I would go in and talk about this as well, you know, saying, hey, so the black line is me. The blue line is you. Where are some of the gaps? What do we need to fix up for you? What do we need to try and do to make make work better for you? And I really try and focus on that too. You know, I really try and say, this is not about making safety better. This is about work. How can we improve work? Which in turn Mm -hmm. will automatically improve safety. So, yeah, for me, it's just really getting in there and starting to really forge those relationships and just be a good dude. You know, like, <laughs> that's, you know, just be a, like, show that I don't think it's too hard for me to show that I'm authentic and that I actually genuinely care for people. And um, that's what really inspires me, right? You know, that's what, that's what kind of makes me successful. I'd like, well, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's just my ability to be able to connect and sort of start influencing that work on the front end, not telling them what to do. But just trying to coach, so have those coaching conversations and where I can take it back to the, the leadership and say, hey, we might need to look at this. This looks like a bit of an issue. Yeah. So it sounds like, yeah, like you just pointed out, influencing is not necessarily about, you know, charging in and changing people's behavior so much as kind of understanding where they are, why they're doing what they're doing and making the work better. So Along those lines, you told me when we last spoke that one of your key skills is something that you call industrial empathy. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, look, that's a term I've stolen. I'd love to be able to claim that as my own. Oh, but, okay. I, but, but, but I heard Bob Edwards and I've also heard Ken Bancroft talk to that too. And basically that's, for me, that's being the boots of the guys doing the work. Now, I used to be a car mechanic. Mm-hmm. 
like I was never much of a car mechanic, if I'm totally honest. But I'd done it for a long time and it got me to Australia, so I'm very grateful for that. But what it does, though, is I know what it's like to do work in the field. I know the shortcuts that people take. I know some of the risky tasks that we do when we don't have the right tools or right equipment or the right systems supporting us. So I think that sort of gives me that sort of edge when things go wrong. So one of the questions that I ask myself when things go wrong is, I wonder why that made sense for them to do that. And I'll sort of say that in a like in front of leaders as well, so that we, they don't go straight into that judgment. So for me, being an ex-mechanic, let's say not very good. You wouldn't want me fixing your car now, maybe, I'm telling you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it just gave me that edge to understand what really happens in the field. Right. And so that's important for your connection, I guess. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And like when I start telling people, like, and I actually still say, I'm a mechanic, mate. I'm a mechanic. That's what I tell people. You know, I don't tell them I'm a safety pro or whatever. I still talk like I'm a mechanic. And it also just helps me with that influencing, you know. And, and when where I work just now is heavy transport and we move quite a lot of things around on trucks. So I'm able to talk to the guys here and say, hey, you know, talk me through this. You know, like, I'm a mechanic. I get it. I'm not an office lackey. So it's, it's just able to, like I said, having that trade background, I think it really does help all safety people. And most of the safety folks that I know have actually come from that experience. You know, they've had some sort of other, they've been dropped into a safety role from somewhere. And they've just, mm-hmm. but the best, well, it's like this will probably be controversial. I know heaps of people say that on your podcast, this will probably be controversial. Right? <laughs> Stay but tuned, I, this will yeah, be controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fire and brimstone. <laughs> But I actually do think that some of the best are really the ones that have been in the field and they sort of get it and they understand what it's like to work there. They are the ones that have that empathy with the frontline teams. Mm-hmm. That's what it definitely being an ex-mechanic has helped me be in the shoes of the others. So then if you were to have like a mentee or something, someone, a younger or newer safety professional who maybe hadn't been in that situation, but had gone straight into safety, do you have any advice on how they might develop that kind of industrial empathy yeah get out of the office get the boots on and get into work with the guys you don't need to get your hands dirty i quite often say to people these hands are not getting dirty anymore but i'll sit here beside you and i'll like i'll talk to you and ask you questions i'll do the work that's my sort of thing i'll say hey i'm not doing the work i've done my time but yeah i would definitely recommend people get the boots on get in the field and just start asking great questions about people's work and what they do. And and honestly, that will serve you well. So what makes a great question? You mentioned earlier that you said you'll have lunch with them and not even talk about safety. Yeah. Are there any kind of go-to, like when you just are first getting to know someone or? Look, I have a pretty unique advantage over most, to be honest, because I have an interesting voice, as I'm sure you can hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right away, that makes a great conversation starter. So when people f- will find me interesting because of my accent, right? Even though I put it on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll just start going in. And like saying, I'll just say, hey, tell me about your work. You know, what do you do here? What's interesting? And I'm like, what pisses you off about this place? Yeah. And then just sort of talk to them about the footy teams. And like, I have to give a big mention to Glasgow Celtic. That's my team that I follow in Scotland. <laughs> and that's what we talk about football and then when I started building those when they've started being a bit softer around me I've actually got a pretty good ability doing that quite fast and then mm-hmm. I can start approaching and sort of saying hey talk to me about the work you know what does safety do that really annoys you what are some of these activities that you do in the name of safety that you just don't understand that don't make sense and I tell you what be prepared for some of the answers because they're yeah, some of them can be quite confronting and normally it's based right at us you know we're the guys that have created this work but also that gives us the power to take it away if we have done it so yeah that would like again I just like to make those relationships because it means I can have difficult conversations with people as well once I've built that relationship if something's not going quite to plan I can say hey you know let's chat let's talk about this let's you know how can we make this better I think just by showing up and asking questions, you're showing them that you're not, hello, I'm from safety and I've come to dictate some new procedure that makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. You've presented yourself as a person and then it might, well, you don't want them to hold back. They see you as a person or they see safety, the safety department mm-hmm. as human. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as well. And I think safety's got a real branding issue. I really do. It's something that, like, I'm pretty fortunate, let's say. I, I'm able to connect pretty quickly, but I've been dropped into other places where safety's an irrelevance. I can mm. think, I, I was in a meeting once and uh, I met quite a senior leader of an organisation and it was when I started a new company. And the lady said to me, oh, yeah, the safety's where, you're where we drop people that we just don't know what to do with anymore. We, we put them in the safety department. And I laughed and I laughed and I kind of reflected on it and I thought, yeah, that's probably true, actually. You know, like I, I was one of those guys. And I do know lots of people who have been in that sort of space where just like, we just do not know what to do with people. So where are we going to sort of, where do we put them? I know we'll put them into safety. Mm. Yeah. And do you think that a lot of those people then though, I mean, you've obviously sort of taken up the challenge and tried to do your level best to make things better, to learn and that sort of thing. Do you think that that, happens like i can give you a good example of i used to have a team that reported into me and there was a lad who'd been at the organization for 30 odd years and he wasn't living his safety values he was a i think he was seen as someone who was just told to go in and be a safety cop mm. now i started talking to this gentleman about you know like the hot principles and talk to people about work and being interested in work and learning and trying to ref- get them to reflect on what went well and what didn't go quite so well in their normal days. And this guy was transformed. Hmm. It was quite profound, actually, when he started saying, like, he wasn't a reader. Like, I'm a massive reader. I consume books, honestly, and I love podcasts. I do it all. But this guy, he wasn't. So I had to just go like, drip feed him some of the hot principles or some of the safety differently concepts. And then I would say, go on, when you go and meet the teams, just ask them this question. And you could see the difference when he was coming back. And I remember going to do a site visit with him. And I started talking, Mary. And the guy, one of the leaders actually said to me, oh, you talk the way that Bruno talks. You know, Bruno, Bruno <laughs> talks about learning and improving work and all that sort of thing. And it was really, I was like, oh, yeah. That day I was like, yes, you know, it's working. And I said, yeah, you know, it's really brilliant. He talks this and it's really good that he talks about you know, the way that work should be done. And uh, yeah, that was such a, a great moment. And that was just, again, that was just influence, just saying, just ask one better question. Rather than mm-hmm. going in and just saying, hey, that's not right, you know, like safety would normally do. That doesn't look right, but I don't know what you're doing, but it doesn't look right, stop the job. <laughs> just go in asking these curious questions. And uh, yeah, that was a, a great moment, that one. So that's talking about the front line. What about influencing leadership? Do you kind of take the same approach or are there different things that you do? Uh, there's been, a, in my current role, it's a bit harder to get like, exposure to the leadership because it's such a dispersed organization. Like mm. The leadership's all over the place and there's a few levels. What I, my sort of approach now is if I can influence the people on my level and the people below me, hopefully that'll create this sort of wave of sort of excellence right safety excellence and people will, and then that'll make the leaders above them a bit curious about hey what's happening or they might start hearing but i know from a, a previous organization the philosophy that we were using some we had a couple of new leaders who probably weren't comfortable with what we were doing and it's simply because they just didn't know right they just didn't mm. understand so i would go in the fields with these guys and just sort of say, hey, how do you get your knowledge? Is it through books? Is it through podcasts? Is it through research papers? You know, t- tell me what you get. And they would go, oh, I love reading or I love podcasts. And I would say, oh, well, here's a podcast for you. Have a listen to this and tell me what you think. Or here's a book. Have a read of this and tell me what you think. And slowly, but surely they were starting to turn around, you know, particularly around the high reliability series. People kind of mm-hmm. like that, you know, like particularly engineers. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of like the way that so that's how I would do it. So it's basically just trying to get in the ear of these guys and just sort of saying, hey, you know, what do you read? What do you listen? What is, you know, what influences you? And then just try and find something that, that will resonate with them. You know, mm-hmm. like um, I can think of a podcast. I know we'll probably talk about this stuff at the end, but there's a podcast called Rethinking Safety. And mm-hmm. that's a great podcast to share with people, particularly senior executives, because it's, it's really well done and it's, and it's great storytelling. So that's something to share a bit. Right now, like I say, my, if, and I would say this to anyone, you'll get this all the time. People say, oh, the leaders at the top, they don't listen to me. This is pointless. They're not, it's not working. But don't underestimate the changes that you can make by just influencing the people beside you and the people down mm-hmm. below you. And if that's where you have to focus, that's where you need to go, right? You know, and 
you really will make change just by changing the conversations. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I am with it with that one. Yeah, that's good. It's um kind of a variation on, you know, meet people where they are, speak their own language and that sort of thing. And also your work will speak for itself if you, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, they'll I, hopefully I'm, notice. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm definitely a big believer in listening to the language that people are using. You'll get an indicator very, very quickly about the culture of an organization just by the way that people talk. Mm-hmm. You know, if you hear the starting to hear blame and punishment sort of language and or else and right away I will go in and sort of change that and challenge it. I will start talking about learning, I'll start talking about improving, you know, innovation. And then um, yeah, why did that make sense for them to do that? Rather yeah. than and that's uncomfortable as well, maybe, you know, like I've been challenged a number of times where people going, nah, he's just an idiot. You know, he's just mm-hmm. like, but you just have to be dogged, you just have to be true to your values and just keep going for it. It will be challenging, but it will be worth it in the end, trust me. Mm-hmm. So one thing, speaking of listening to people, you emphasize the importance of collecting stories as in addition to quantitative data, like when you're doing, when you're looking at risk and trying to understand it, you've said that the numbers are great, but they're not the whole picture and you really need this kind of story or testimony or anecdote. So why do you think that that's an important dimension that that adds understanding? There's a great quote from a guy called Greg Smith. Called, he says, like, safety is a narrative, not a number. And it's something mm. that's really stuck with me because like, I was at an org- a site yesterday and they had all this zero plastered all over the place. And then to walk through that, you'd right. be like, oh, geez, that's quite, this is, I don't quite, if I could tell the story of this work, it would be a lot different to that number on the front door. If right. that makes sense. Yeah. Just from walking around and listening to people, you think, well, that, that number doesn't make any sense. But we're, I think we get these recordables and, and LTI rates and they're just sort of, we're, we're always looking to trend them down, you know, like we need them close to zero as possible. And it's not capturing the true stories of what's happening. You know, like uh, you, you could change a light bulb in your office on a sort of wheelie chair, right? And the wires could be hanging <laughs> yeah. down, right? Oh, I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither have I. I would never do anything like that. Even when I was a mechanic, I would never do anything dodgy. But what I mean is we could do work that's not quite as safe every single day, but never have an accident. So mm-hmm. that's going to show in their trending rates, right? That's going to show in these LTI rates or like the triffer rates because people go, oh, look, everything must be great because nothing's happening. But right. when you start digging deeper into the stories of the work, you know, when people start going, hey, like I use a like a chair with wheels, to work at heights, you go, what? You know, like, oh, I don't have a harness when I climb up on top of this excavator or there's no barriers around this excavator and I have to climb up it every single day. That's when, when you start hearing that stuff, it's like, okay, you know, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. Right. And that's sort of the difference when you're looking at risk, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to what has happened. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Just when I was talking about if and when, that's something I really encourage like, people to do as well. You know, don't talk about if this happens, you know, because then that gives someone an escape route. They'll probably go, oh, that doesn't happen. But when you change the question to like, so when this happens, how do we control that? How do we respond to this? It really offers some brilliant insights around how they would react and respond. So that's, in terms of going back to like, the, the quality of that, I just think the stories tell so much better than what they do, the numbers. Because mm-hmm. like, when you look at the numbers, I'm really the wrong guy to ask about this stuff now. Because when we look at the numbers at where I am now, I'm just like, la, 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 la. <laughs> so what's lying behind this stuff? You know, we've yeah. got this amazing data, but what's it telling us about what's really happening out there? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we talk about critical control work, verifi- like work insights and verifications and all that sort of stuff. You know, this is when you can capture the anecdotal stories and, you know, watch how people interact with these crucial systems. A number's not going to take, like, a number's not going to tell you how that work is done unless something goes wrong. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question is whether when you're collecting these stories, do you have kind of a systematic approach? Like, are you already curious about a particular thing or is it just sort of less formal and having to do with the connections that you were talking about earlier? Oh, look, it really depends. Quite a few times I've just basically asked a couple of questions and then it's led me on this sort of path of discovery. I can think of one a number of years ago. I was I was in the field and I was just the guys were working on this big excavation and I was like, wow, you know, that's pretty massive. You know, how is that controlled? And then 
And then they just said to him, oh, but Steve, you should be more concerned about this one. We have to climb up on the top of the truck. And I was like, what? You know, yeah, we have to climb up on top of the truck to do this work. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then that led me to go to other people and sort of say, hey, tell me about how you do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we have to climb up on top of the truck. The top of the truck is a, like, it's, it's pretty risky. And then you say, well, mm-hmm. why are you not telling us? Why don't you tell us that stuff? It's like, ah, oh, we just like, we just don't. We just got on with the work. We just get on with the job. So, and then that's a good opportunity for me to go, hey, I think this is a big issue for us. Maybe we need to run like a learning team or, and you know, get some a group of the guys together and just sort of talk through and find out what's really happening here. And yeah, and that's when you find out, hey, it went from me just being on site looking at a big excavation to being this, hey, we've got this working at heights issue. Mm-hmm. So that's really how it happens. It's just about being curious and asking some just better questions and also being sort of trustworthy enough that people will talk to you and tell you this stuff's happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the things that I think you do that maybe helps build that trust is you call yourself a safety performance professional and you're talking about how that you're unpacking the bureaucracy that slows people down. And I'm pretty sure that bureaucracy is fairly universally hated by anyone who has to just get on with the work and get the job done. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, like the decluttering stuff. This this is the hardest thing that we can ever do in safety because as soon as we start having the conversations about what we can get rid of, you start to see a, a few nervous twitches yeah. and people just go, but we need it, you know, we need it. This is, the regulator's going to ask for this stuff. And then you ask the question again, say, hey, do you know this? How do you know the regulator's going to ask for this? And they might, but do we really need it? You know, what does, like, let's research it, you know, let's try and understand what we really need. But yeah, decluttering, it's something I've been involved with before at a couple of organisations. I'm trying to embark on it at my current one, but like I say, it's very, very challenging. I know from experience that when we take documents away, people will create new documents outside of the system because they need that. It's like a safety comfort blanket. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's almost like, oh no, we, we just need to do this. We just need to sort of like, we're taking this away, but it just doesn't feel right. You know, like, and we're like, no, it's fine. You know, like we've coached you, we've trained you how to like do this stuff better, but it's just something that's really, really hard to do. It's just something, have a crack at it. Definitely sort of have a look at some of these documents that you might no longer be fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. But my sort of approach to that now, Mary, is if we've got like a checklist that's maybe like 30, 40 lines r- long we can sort of maybe say like how can we reduce this how can we make it to what the stuff that really really matters in this you know what are some of the things in here that we can take away but it just makes people nervous honestly it's it's my experience of it yeah and i mean it's a balancing act i'm sure it's not like you're taking away every safety thing but you mentioned to me that you've encountered or heard tell of an actual checklist for how to sit in the passenger seat of a vehicle yeah, yeah, yeah. Is and that right? Yeah, yeah, and there's other stuff as well about, you know, I've seen like garbage bins, sort of checklists. You know, we just create stuff that, and checklists for checking, the, for inspecting fridges, you know, and inspecting offices and all that thing. I read a book a number of, well, geez, about maybe two years ago called The Checklist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. And the person that I told one day, he was like a surgeon and he created the pre-surgery checklist. Now, he always talks about you have between, I think it's five and nine checkpoints on a checklist. So I've always tried to do that now. You know, like, how can we narrow this down so that allows your, it's like a freedom within a frame. What's the safety nets that we need to have in this that still allows you to think and look around and make decisions about how work is done? But yeah, it's a lot easier said than done. But the beauty of some of these documents is like, if we own them as a safety team, we can just turn them off, right? And sort of, and just do that mm-hmm. experiment, and just, and just sort of, let's not make this accessible. You know, let's let's have a look and see if anyone uses this. And you'll probably find that none of them do. You've got those ubiquitous sort of pre-start risk assessment tools and pre-start vehicle checklists. You know, like I personally think they are absolutely a waste of time. But how can we repurpose them and you know make them really matter? And that's some of the things that I'm sort of working at just now. You know, like how can we make you walk around the vehicle and really inspect the things that matter rather than sitting in an office just going, tick, that's me done, jump in the truck. Mm-hmm. So who gets more nervous or maybe everyone equally, but who gets more nervous when you try to declutter or sort of pare down 
procedures? Is it the people who are doing the procedures because they feel maybe they don't feel confident that without the checklist that they'll either do it right? Or is it people who are more in leadership who are thinking, if you don't do that, we're not covered legally or or whatever? Like, what are the fears behind that? Yeah, look, I can experience frontline staff as well being a bit nervous of removing documents. In a previous organisation, we looked at removing the pre-start tick list and made it become like a guided conversation. And uh, I remember one guy in particular was like, Steve, I'm not comfortable with this at all. You know, like, what if something goes wrong? I, like, mm-hmm. you guys, will, that'll be the first thing that you guys ask for. And I was like, but you're not really doing it just now. So what's the difference? It's like, and I suppose what you were saying was, well, if something goes wrong, I will fill that form in before you come to site. Essentially, right. you know, that. so it's like it's there after the fact to be able to sign something. But generally, it's mostly frontline leaders, actually, that get a wee bit more nervous about it. I've recently tried to embark on a similar sort of project, removing the frontline, or even just repurposing it and making it, not completely removing it, but just doing something different with it. And those leaders are like, well, where do we stand legally with this? And it doesn't right. matter how many times I show them. Because often, I've got a mate who's a fireman, but I tell his story, and he's like, he doesn't fill in a take five when he just about to run into a, like a burning building. He's just well-trained yeah. and he's risk-competent. And I think that's probably what we need to try and do. It's almost like it's the last line for organisations to control their workers, this take five. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, here we go before they execute the work. Oh, here's this last wee bit to try and make them think differently. Right. So it's really what we need to do is just create like risk-competent workers, talking about the stuff that's happening out there, you know, talking about that every day. Having re- I love post-job reflections. I think there's so much value in those. You just getting the people to talk about their work every day and uh, even they have become paperwork as well, right? So we they have this fuss for proceduralization. But again, so I see your point, maybe yeah, everyone kind of gets nervous about removing stuff because it's safety, right? But I tell mm-hmm. you what, see when you add documents, let's add them in, let's add whatever we need, you know, but we'll add more lines in the process. We'll create a procedure for being a passenger on a vehicle. We'll create this, this has happened, you know, like, oh, we need to do something. We need to be seen to be doing something. And then that's why we, right. we create this process. But yeah, look, I would really encourage people to start having the conversations about what really matters. And if you don't have the confidence to get rid of it, which 99% of people don't really, let's try and repurpose it, do something else with mm-hmm. it, create a cartoon, you know, create, like, have a picture storyboard or something instead, you know, remove the checklists, you know, create, make it five or, or 12, line, five or nine lines long, you know, and just try and change it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've got a long, long way to go, I think, before we really start being brave enough to remove this. And we need, and basically we need lawyers and those guys to help educate us. There's a few of them out there that are sort of really telling us that these things are not really that valuable unless you're actually following them to the letter. Mm-hmm. But the problem is we don't know many people that actually do follow them to the letter. I would think that they would actually be dangerous if you have them and don't follow them to the letter because yeah. then if there was some legal situation you know, you're like, well, you had the standard, but you didn't use it is probably worse than, well, you didn't have the standard, so you did your best. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, but listen, I should stop right there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but listen, the thing, we're both not lawyers. Well, I'm exactly. certainly not anyway. Exactly. I'm still a mechanic, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but what we do know from talking to our people is they think this stuff's useless and it doesn't help them. It doesn't support the work. So how can we create documents and how can we create process that helps support the work? And that might be part of the connection piece too, right? If you are creating processes and checklists or whatever, or removing them in such a way that you're supporting the work, I imagine that that helps the workers feel connected with that you actually are, you're not just sort of this weird parental figure telling them what to do or not to do, but you actually care about making their day-to-day more manageable yeah absolutely and get those guys get the the people who that i mean we as in safety and and the office people and whoever we create all that stuff and pass it down to the people on the front line and say hey you need to do this now right and they're like what like something else i mean and we haven't got them involved in the design process in fact i've only ever known that once i mean i'm sure it happens heaps of places but in my own experience, I've only known that to happen once when we created a guided conversation. We actually went to the field and said, hey, 
what questions do you ask yourself when you do this work? And then we just sort of created a conversation piece from that. You know, it was nothing. How often do we use difficult and complicated language when we're writing procedures and process, you know, and stuff? Like, people just can't make, like, mechanics can't make sense of it, right? You know, people just can't make sense. So, like, write the process using their language and within reason, mind you, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, help them engineer and design the the process right Mm -hmm. we don't do it a lot unfortunately because the guys don't have time to come off the tools and that's true you have to support them in having that time right they can't be like okay you've called me over here but now i'm nervous because i'm not going to meet a quota or something it has to be clear that you know no we support you it's okay like so i'm gonna switch gears here on you speaking of mechanics and say that in the intro i alluded to what you do in your spare time you are a stand-up comedian. Oh, uh, <laughs> loosely. I have done, certainly done a few shows. It's the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever I done. I can imagine. <laughs> but the reason that I'd done it was just so that I could make safety better, right? But I know it sounds, I, it's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to have a crack at doing a bit of stand-up. But I, I figured if I could do it, and it would just make me a better communicator. Uh, like, I'm hilarious anyway, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. But, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was actually I'd done it just so I could make safety fun. You know, that's one of my sort of values is having fun. But what I didn't sort of know at the time when I started doing it is that how much the writing can influence safety. Like how, so I am basically writing every single day now. I think that's what I enjoy more actually than the actual performing is the writing process because you can see the banal and everything, right? Yeah, and you hear these conversations. You think, "Oh, that's hilarious!" I'm writing that down, and then when you see it, you're like, "Oh my god!" Like we make people do this stuff, or you know, like <laughs> this is absolutely crazy. Some other interesting concepts in the writing. When I was being, I've done like training in this, and one of the mm-hmm. things that the girl was talking about with us was sitting, just stand in a different location and have a look at the same thing, right? So, what that right? Let me try and explain that easily. When you have your dinner at home, you probably sit in the same chair. Every single night, right? Because I know what I do, and I right. sit in the same spot in the living room and watch the telly in the same spot. So basically, try moving somewhere else, moving a different direction, and see, and then sort of see what you see then. And it's so true, though. You know, like how many times do we just sit in the one spot and just look at work or whatever, rather than just moving around and sort of seeing it from a different angle, or even just seeing life in a different way? You know, like look up and do that. So, so that's what I've been there. So basically, I'd done the stand-up to try and make safety better, but trying to make safety funny is a whole different matter, Mary. Like, <laughs> I, th- we, we, I think we'd lose... I think we're scared of humour in buildings, and I think we're scared of humour in the office. You know, I like think, I think we're scared of offending people a lot, which is, fr- yeah. which is, which is frankly, I don't really worry too much about. I definitely don't go like super offensive or anything like that. But I make fun of the company and I'll make fun of me and I'll make fun of safety in general and that sort of stuff. And it, it just just makes for better conversations. Well, I think, too, uh, you mentioned something about a stand-up show about the performing part is that when you're not headlining the new Netflix special, you know, when you're not <laughs> yeah, a long way from Hannah that. Gatsby or whatever, right? Some You get how much time on the stage? Like, oh, not well, very much. No, like you get five to seven minutes. And I tell you what, if right. you go six fifty nine, you're getting the hook to pull you off. <laughs> so um so you only basically get five minutes and particularly when you're away down the line like I am. I, I'm normally the first one on when everybody's still sober, which helps me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, you get basically five minutes and that so but what that also allows you to do, and this is where the writing comes in, it allows you to formulate lots of information, but you unnecessary rubbish. Right. So I have to tell a story, multiple stories. So normally I have about five to seven different subjects that I also approach in those five minutes. Some will go for a couple of minutes, whatever. But you have to get rid of quite a lot of the rubbish. You know, like words that don't mean it, make any sense. Or you have to play on words, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. lefty Lucy, Lucy Goosey, you know, like those. You have to have yeah, those yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. you have to have those. And they're always quite memorable as well, right? So if we can sort of, wherever writing stuff like this, and I mean, not so much writing and process and procedures, but when we sort of deliver training, you know, when we can talk about these mm-hmm. things, you know, lefty, loosey, righty, tighty, you know, blah, 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 just make those things, the play on words memorable. 
So yeah, when you're writing your scripts, you just have to make sure that you get the right, well, obviously the funny information in your script and just remove any of the sort of clutter. So I've tried to do that. So how I bring that into safety is I try and keep all my sort of safety communications to one page. Right. So I try and I'll have a look at, say for us, I have to write the minutes for a HSE meeting or something. I'll keep it to one page and I'll try and just put all the punchy points in and try and just keep it so that it makes sense. So I'm struggling a wee bit with that because people who aren't in the meeting, they go, wow, like this doesn't make sense. This is not, you know, the people mm. who are not in the meeting won't really understand that. So I'm still a work in progress, but I sort of call it the Twitter philosophy, you know, like how can I get, you know, how you mm-hmm. used to have 140 characters in Twitter. So it's like, how can I get maximum information into that 140 characters? Well, and that's true for safety training. I mean, I don't personally know the stats, but I know that people's attention span is very short. <laughs> yeah. Especially, terrible. I imagine, at a safety training. Like, most of us don't wake up in the morning and go, God, I wish I hope, you know, I hope that I get a safety training today. So I think that just getting in there, being punchy, and telling it maybe in story form or, or whatever, you know, yeah. and giving them a laugh is probably pretty helpful. Yeah, definitely. And when I deliver in this training, I get the guys to do the talking. You know, so we'll have, uh-huh. a, sub- we'll have a subject. Yeah, like people have been saying to me, like, you talk too much when you do your toolbox talks. And I'm like, I didn't talk at all. I just started the conversation and facilitated the conversation. Mm. I've had that. I used to work for a labor hire company. And when I would do my toolbox talks, people would come in saying, hey, like, that took too long. Normally our toolbox take about 15, 20 minutes. Normally these toolbox talks take about 15, 20 minutes, but yours are taking longer. And I was like, yeah, that's because I'm asking. I'm, I'm not just going through the motions and telling them and going through the, you know, I'm actually interacting with them and, and letting them mm-hmm. tell me what they need to do. So yeah, even in safety training, you know, if I've got a subject to need to talk about, you know, I try and make it as safe space as possible. I'll even, jack, I'll even crack a joke about, right, everyone's dignity has now left the building and shut the door. Boom. <laughs> You're mine now. We're going to have a good chat about this. And like, I will make sure that everyone's involved. I will actually, you know, not pick on people, but I'll say, hey, Dave, what do you think about this? You know, or Steve, what, right, do, what, yeah. what do you think of this? And then once they start talking and they're feeling safer, you can't shut them up. <laughs> 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 but it works for me. I don't know if it works for everyone else, but it certainly works for me. And again, I think my voice and the way that I bring humour into safety works well for me. Mm-hmm. So some of your safety values that you've talked about include fun, connection, and experiences. To me, it sounds like you could easily just be describing stand-up, like just as easily as describing safety. Does that ring true for you? They're my own personal values as well, right? So I try and bring, so I definitely bring them in, in my work environment. I definitely know if you're not working to those values, then you're going to be pretty miserable. So that's why I try and bring fun and enjoy into everything I sort of really touch. Like I, even if we're having quite a serious meeting, I'll probably throw in some comical line just to try and break up the bloody beigeness. Mm. You know, like the companies are really beige and boring, right? And I don't think that's sort of, I'm not quite sure where it comes from because I'm pretty sure the, the leaders at the top don't want the organisations to be beige and boring, you know, like throw where does it manifest from and why do we always think that we need to be serious all the time and be professional? You know, it's like, <laughs> why do we have to do it? So, like, that's why I don't. I always try and crack a funny and have a bit of a laugh. And anything that I do, particularly when it comes to safety, because it's such a bloody banal topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, I'm sure it's appreciated. Like, I think most of us, um, it takes effort to be quote unquote professional, whatever that yeah, yeah, totally. means. And if you can tell jokes and relax a little bit, then you can be a little more authentic. Yeah, like and being authentic, I think if I am me, you know, if I do go and take the Mickey, people I actually know it. I really know that, that I've connected with folk when they start taking the, the Mickey out of me. Right. When I walk into a toolbox, they go, oh, here he is, you know, like, oh, look at this guy. <laughs> That's when I know. I'm starting to make a difference and I'll start to hear stuff and that's when I'll start to be able to capture some of those insights from the field around what's really happening. And then, yeah, just, let's say, just spend the time with people. Good. I wanted to ask too, you also use social media and memes and that kind of thing in your work. What social media platforms do you use and like, how do you use them? What do you use them for? Yeah, like, basically, I only use Instagram right now. Okay. 
but I do have a TikTok page, but I'm just not brave enough to put myself out there <laughs> quite yet. I am working on it. But for 100 years, Mary, we have basically gave people a bit of paper to say, here you go, here's a safety alert, right? We're trying to shift 100 years of thinking, essentially, right? And you know what it's like. People will get these safety alert and go, all right, cool, whatever, where they're saying, I've read it. But they haven't really, yeah. right? So I have my own little safety boy sort of Instagram page where I just capture some of those sort of, you know, when people post those sort of crazy videos online or like I've heard people saying they call it like safety porn, but I actually use it in a sort of different way. I know people don't like the judgmental comments that come after this stuff. But what I found in the past, and I've not been able to do it as much in my current role, but in the past, when I was sitting in toolbox talks, people would get these safety alerts and go, all right, cool. Can you tell me what's happening on Safety Boy? And we huh. go through some of my sort of stories and we go through some of the the videos and we just have a talk about it, you know, like particularly like trenches and sort of people working around it, like excavations or people working at heights or maybe some of these falls that were happening around, you know, and we could like have a nice sensible conversation. And if I did hear judgment, I could call it out because mm-hmm. I was, obviously I'm driving the conversation. So if people go, oh, he was an idiot, well, I go, no, 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 hang a minute. How could that happen with us? Can it happen with us? And then they would probably go, well, no, it can't because we use this or we've got these controls in place. That would never happen here. So it just changes the conversation. And when you actually see something rather than read it, you know, like it's something that really annoys me too. You know, like people don't read documents, they scan them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they do. They just scan them. So if you put something up there that's like 15 seconds long, you know, you you'll get more information in that 15 seconds than what you will read in a, like a massive document, right? I'd argue you probably wouldn't get take much from the document, to be honest. But at least then you can see it and you can have, have these conversations. But I also use my sort of Instagram feed for, like I was saying earlier, I, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. So I use, it takes me ages, maybe it probably takes me longer to sort of read a book because I do this. But I will type in stuff that means a lot to me or I'll take a picture of or a screen mm. dump or something like that if I'm using uh, my Kindle stuff. And then I'll put it in my Instagram stories. And I mostly do that for me, but I know that other people do read them though because they tell me. So anything that's interesting, I will post in my Instagram stories. And I've used the quotes from books to post on like social media internally mm-hmm. in the organisation say, hey, what about this quote? You know, what do you think of that? You know, like there was one I can think of, uh, complacency is a, this from Todd Conklin, complacency is a, a byproduct of a stable system. You know, that generates mm. brilliant conversations. You know, like, well, what, what do you mean? You know, and it's just, we're just able to talk stuff through. So, look, I'm a big fan of social media. And there was a wee bit of research that came out, I think it was either this year or the end of last year, talking about how we, we don't use social media enough to sort of mm. generate safety interactions or, or use it because we're still stuck to this bloody bit of paper. That is mm-hmm. like Henry Ford was using, right? Because <laughs> you know, it is, honestly, right? We're trying to shift. Like, I know me and a few others, and you've had most of them on your podcast. We're trying to shift the way that we think about work. And mm-hmm. it's going to be a slow process, right? Because we've done the same work for 100 years. And now you get these young upstarts coming through trying to change the way that we look at work. And, <laughs> and using social media is just part of that. And I do follow quite a lot of people who post interesting stories and interesting, mostly play acting. There's one guy in particular I can think on TikTok who just sort of takes a mickey out of the workplace in general. Right. But again, it's just a conversation starter. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you put put it on the screen and you go, hey, what do you mean? Does that happen here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got people in the office that do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or you're laughing a little too hard. I think you know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. 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 So, I'm a big fan of social media. If I could get brave enough to show my face and maybe tell some stories on these reels, uh, then I might. But normally, I just normally take photos of the, the banality and craziness of safety, you know, and share them online. Some of these signage that you see around the place, you know, like hot water is hot or this, yes. this, this knife is sharp. Or there's one photo yeah. in particular on Safety Boy that inspired the page, actually. It was a stapler and it said, aim away from face. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And this stuff, but also when you see these in, in work sites, you actually get a feeling for what they really think about safety. You know, if I go into a mm. kitchen and I see all this, like, oh, 
knives are sharp or toaster is hot or there's warning labels on hot water and stuff. That to me is a red flag. And right away, I will want to know how they manage high-risk work or more likely right. how they don't manage high-risk work because they're so busy focusing on the stuff that doesn't matter. Right. Whereas you should be flipping that and focusing on actually on the stuff that really does matter. Well, I think it shows a lack of trust too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you got to trust that your employees know that knives are sharp, I hope. <laughs> yeah, like, well, I always think... Kitchen knives. Yeah, I know, right? You know, like, you see quite a lot of things about prohibited items. And mm-hmm. I was in an organization a number of years ago, and they asked me to deliver a toolbox talk on knives. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. And like, Steve, it's come from corporate. You need to do it. And I was like, I'm not doing it. If we can trust people to drive 30 ton garbage trucks around schools and heavy traffic and flip these things over their head and... If we can trust people to do that, we can trust grown men and women to use a knife. And uh, yeah, that was the last I ever heard of that conversation. <laughs> but it was just, again, it was just when you start to say compare it to other things. So we can trust people to run these major facilities, but we can't trust them to use a knife. You know, are we really going to end up with a fatality case if somebody cuts themselves? Obviously, we don't want people to hurt themselves. We definitely don't want people to have traumatic cuts from using a knife. But it's it's like I was talking about earlier, Mary. You know, we need to create risk competency. You know, we need to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you see somebody using a knife wrong, let's have a chat about like a nice way to do it or use your products, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and like, do, do you know what I mean? It's like we have to make sure we have to. I know it sounds crazy, but maybe we do have to teach people how to use this stuff. But if we ban them, what are they going to use instead? Mm, yeah. So that's always a conversation. If you ban it, we need to work harder and find out what they're using instead because they obviously need these tools to get this job done. So yeah. if we're going to remove a chisel, you know, these guys are going to use a screwdriver. So be mindful of this. Yeah. So. But yeah, at the end of the day, as you said, it comes down to trust. Yeah. So we're getting close to time, but I have some questions that I like to ask at the end. And I think you know, because <laughs> you've heard the podcast before, you know what they are, but here we go at the University of Stephen, the Safety University of Stephen. Where would you focus soft skill training for tomorrow's safety professionals? Well, at the University of Steve, right? There would be stand up comedy, there would be live bands, and there'd be copious amounts of alcohol, right? Yeah. But, but when you graduate <laughs> from the University of Steve and I come back and talk to you, I would be talking, look, listening. And I think that's something you need to learn. I really do, you know, and being curious. I actually learned to listen when I went to Toastmasters. So you might have heard mm. of Toastmasters. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I went to a Toastmasters course in Brisbane. and Just for our readers, that's um, you learn public speaking, right? That's sort of the main, yeah. Yeah, you just learn how to communicate better. Because I was when I came to Australia, I was always worried about my accent, right? And mm. like if people would understand me. And it turns out it's fine. Well, I hope it's fine. We'll soon find out if you get people going, what the hell did he say? <laughs> <laughs> but they taught me how to listen. And it was quite amazing, actually. So when you're having these conversations with people, you can actually, they have this um and ah counter. You know, when you, people go, mm, um, uh, 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 and they use filler words. So that that really, the Toastmasters really helped me to listen. So yeah, at the University of Steve, listening skills would be up there, number one. And number two would be maintaining eye contact. I think that's such an important skill to have, just in life in general as well, though. Yeah. So listening and maintaining eye contact because that just helps build trust and shows that you care very quickly. Good. Okay. If you could go back in time to the beginning of your safety career, is there one piece of advice that you would give young Steve? Uh, stick to your dreams and become a pop star. <laughs> that would have been my advice to young Steve. But in terms of safety, uh, like I probably would have became a, I probably would have read more. When yeah. I was one of those safety guys that was thrusted into these roles because they just didn't know what to do with them. Because I, w- I was injured in a workplace accident and I wasn't going back to fixing cars. So I get right. put into a role that they just like, oh, I just put them in there and he can help. But I was not very good then. I was one of those guys that created lots of checklists and I would be disruptive and difficult and annoying and, and just probably not the way that I am now. So Advice to 28-year-old Steve would have been, hey, read this book and start reading this and, and practice your sort of softer skills. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. You've mentioned a few things, but do you have any resources that you recommend 
to our listeners today? Like favorite books, for example? I'm a massive book reader, but I know from listening to the podcasts, a lot of the people recommend like the field guide to understand the human error. I would Mm -hmm. definitely recommend that one. But I've started now reading outside of safety to help improve my work. And there's one book that's really inspired me. And I think it's going to be the future of the safety profession. It's a book called The Ministry of Common Sense Mm -hmm. by a guy called Martin Lundstrom, I think it is. But you'll never forget the title. The Ministry of Common Sense is a brilliant read. And it talks about all that craziness that I spoke about earlier why we bring these crazy rules in and people can't work, you know, like because we've lost our empathy in the workplace, we've lost our connection with the customers. So have a check, have a read at the Ministry of Common Sense because I believe that will be our career in the coming years, going in there and trying to get rid of all the rubbish. Okay, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember that. So next I ask where people can find you on the web. You've already mentioned Instagram. What's the actual like, yeah, yeah, so profile. Yeah, well, you can get me on Safety Boy, which is boy is B H O I. Again, that's oh, okay. a homage to my football team in Scotland. Uh, so oh. you can get me on Safety Boy. I share some pictures, I'll share lots of stories, but mostly I will share quotes from books that I read. So if you have a look at my Instagram stories, please have a read at some of them. There's quite a comprehensive collection of contemporary safety books in there and, and some others, the Ministry of Common Sense being one. There you can get me on LinkedIn. I'm definitely pretty active on there. Please come and say hello. Actually, going back to Instagram, please be don't be offended if I don't follow you because I like to keep <laughs> Safety Boy free of dinners and, and pets because then that means I can share the stories and, and it means my whole feed is taken up with, you know, like uh, safety activities and, and that sort of space. So, but yeah, that's where you, you'll find me and you can see me in those places. Always happy to catch up, always happy to say hello and... Uh, yeah, this has been great. It's been very, very enjoyable, Mary. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd like to thank our listeners, of course, for tuning in. And thanks for lending us your time and your wisdom and your stories. No, my pleasure. This has been great. And keep up the great work. And lastly, of course, my thanks to the Safety Labs by Slice team. You are fantastic to work with. And that is no joke. So bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.